This morning we're going to be talking a little bit about mission. And, and are we on mission? And, and before you walk out and think that I'm going to ask everyone to go to the mission field today, all of us are on mission. We're to be on mission, starting with where we are. And, and starting to, with the people around us and in our spheres of influence, are we on mission with them? When I was thinking of, of how to describe being on mission, I wanted to share a story of Dakota Meyer. Dakota Meyer was given the Medal of Honor by President Obama in, in, on September 15th, 2011. And I think he exemplifies for us what it means to be on mission. Granted, he's not on a, a spiritual mission. He's not on Jesus' mission, but he shows us what it meant to be on mission. On September 8th, 2009, just before dawn, a patrol of Afghan forces and their American trainers is on foot, making their way up a narrow valley, heading into a village to meet with elders. And suddenly, all over the village, the lights go out, and then it happens. About a mile away, Corporal Dakota Meyer and Staff Sergeant Juan Rodriguez Chavez could hear the ambush over the radio. It was as if the whole valley was exploding. Taliban fighters were unleashing a firestorm from the hills, from the stone houses, even from the local school. And soon the patrol was pinned down, taking ferocious fire from three sides. Men were being wounded and killed, and four Americans... Dakota's friends were surrounded. Four times Dakota and Juan asked permission to go in. Four times they were denied. They were told it was just too dangerous. Dakota and his friend talked, and Dakota said of his trapped teammates, those were my brothers, and I won't just sit back and watch. What he did next is, is, is the, the amazing part of the story. He told Juan they were going in. Juan jumped in the Humvee and took the wheel. Dakota climbed into the turret and manned the gun. They drove straight into the killing zone. Dakota's upper body and head exposed to a blizzard of fire from AK-47s and machine guns, from mortars and rocket-propelled grenades. Coming upon wounded Afghan soldiers, Dakota jumped out and loaded each one of the wounded into his Humvee, each time exposing himself to all that enemy fire. They turned around, drove those wounded back to safety. Those who were there called it the most intense combat they'd ever seen. Dakota and Juan would have been forgiven if they had stopped there, saved those men, and not went back in. But as Dakota says, you don't leave anyone behind. For a second time, they went back, back into the inferno, Juan at the wheel, swerving to avoid all the explosions all around them. Dakota up in the turret. One gun jammed, so he grabbed another and went through gun after gun. And again, they came across wounded Afghans. Again, Dakota jumped out, loaded them up, and brought them back to safety. For a third time, they went back. Insurgents running right up to the Humvee, Dakota fighting them off. Up ahead, a group of Americans, some wounded, were desperately trying to escape the bullets raining down. Juan wedged the Humvee right into the line of fire, using the vehicle as a shield. With Dakota on the guns, they helped those Americans back to safety as well. For a fourth time, they went back in. Dakota was now wounded in the arm. Their vehicle was riddled with bullets and shrapnel. Dakota later confessed, I didn't, think I, was, I didn't think I was going to die. I knew I was. But they still pushed on, finding the wounded, delivering them to safety. And then for a fifth time, they went back into the fury of that village under fire that seemed to come from every window, every doorway, every alley. And when they finally got to those trapped Americans, Dakota jumped out. And he ran toward them, drawing all those enemy guns on himself, bullets kicking up the dirt all around him. He kept going until he came upon those four Americans lying where they fell together as one team. 
Dakota and the others who had joined him knelt down, picked up their comrades, and through all those bullets, all the smoke, all the chaos, carried them out one by one. Because as Dakota says, that's what you do for a brother. That's being on mission. That is, is a story in, in, in war and in a battle of how you give yourself for the cause and you know what your cause is and you do everything you can to accomplish it. This morning I start with that story because so many times when we sing about the cause of Christ, when we talk about being on mission, so many times we think of it as this light, fun thing that we're Christians and believers and I might witness to someone every now and then because I was challenged to do it, but we forget that we are in a spiritual battle. And we, are forget, we forget that we are in wartime and we are battling quite literally the forces of Satan and for the souls and hearts of men and women. We are fighting for souls to hear the gospel and come to Christ. And my challenge to us this morning as we go through the text is to not take that lightly because it's the mission of Christ that He hands to us. It's the mission that we've been given and told should be our constraining, defining mission of who we are as believers sons and daughters of the King and of the kingdom. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 24 verses today. It's a big section, but it's another missions trip. And it's really, I think, pretty special that our missions team is coming back this morning as we're talking about Jesus sending a missions, another missions team and then them coming back and reporting. But this is the second time, if you remember, that we've seen this. In chapter 9, at the first six verses... We saw Jesus send the 12, and now he's going to send the 72. And he's developing a pattern of what our mission should be, and he's training people to accomplish that. Luke chapter 10, 1 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the seat around you somewhere. Grab that. If you don't have one at home, take that home. That's our gift to you. But I want to read the the first 15 or so verses, and then we'll come back And just start to grab some principles. This passage is loaded with principles. Hard to narrow it down to just three. So we're going to ask ourselves ten questions today. Uh, Questions, not points. So don't don't panic. Ten questions to sort of assess whether I'm on mission. Am I committed to the cause of Christ? Am I on mission for what He wants me to do? And, And my prayer this morning is that God's Word challenges and convicts us today. And, and reorients our life. And maybe, you know, you, we, we get out of line every now and then, or we drift every now and then, that God uses this passage to, to reveal and bring us back to a dedication to His cause. So I want to read the text, and then we'll pull, pull some things out of it. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He was about to go. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages." Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for your town. Verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in ashcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum? You'll be, exalt, you'll be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The passage goes on to their return, and we'll cover that a little bit later this morning. But we see another commissioning. Jesus sending out the 72. And, and like I said, there's all kinds of principles about going and, and being on mission. And in this case, they're going to different towns somewhat near them. Um, with, the, with the 12, we saw a smaller region and this is expanding. But for you and I, are we on mission where God has placed us? Are we doing what he wants us to do with where we're planted right now? And so some of the questions that this, this passage brings up that we should ask ourselves, the first is, do I have a clear sense of divine commission to Jesus' mission? Yes, wordplay is intentional there. Do I have a clear sense of divine commission to Jesus' mission? And we know, especially from, from Luke 9, 1 through 6, Jesus said, my mission is to, to heal or to help people and to proclaim the gospel. And so he sets these two things that says the mission is to proclaim and to serve or to help people. And that's his mission and that's what he's passing on. And so the question is, do I have a clear sense of divine commission to Jesus' mission? And I use divine commission. I had calling in there at first, but I think calling is one of those words that we take pretty lightly. Oh yeah, I'm called to do this. I'm called to do this. And, and we don't see it as a mandate. Uh, but, but here what we're seeing is Christ's mission We are commissioned, we are sent, we are commanded to make that our priority, who we are. In verse 1 it says, And after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them. And and the idea of appointed and sent apostolos is, is that they are commissioned by Jesus to accomplish this. Now, now we have to, to think through, okay, how does this apply to us? Because we could, we could get around this text pretty easily and say, that was the 72. That's not me. But remember, Jesus is making disciples. And what do disciples do of the master? They copy the master. The word is to mimic or to follow after. And so all the disciples are to copy the master. So if Jesus' mission is to preach and to heal and proclaim, then that's our mission. And so what Jesus is doing, if you think about this, and I think I have the circles up here, in, in Luke 9, we saw the 12. And the 12 went to some cities around there, and, and Jesus gave them some of the same instructions. These should sound familiar. And, and he trains them and sends them out to a small region. And now, in, in chapter 10, the region is expanding, and he's sending 72. And in this case, these are probably not the 12, because it says 72 others. And so he's now trained more, he's sending out, and their spread, their reach is further. Then we go to the third circle and we think ahead to Matthew 28 or Luke 24. 
and, and we see the Great Commission, which is for all of us. It's instructions to the church to go and make disciples. And then, in case we're, we're, we're confused about it, and I don't have this on the slide, in Acts 1.8, which is the second half of Luke, Jesus says, now go into all the world and, and go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. This is the mandate for the church to, to preach and to serve, to proclaim and to serve. We can't get around this. This is a divine commission. And so the first sense is, do I have a clear sense that this is a divine commission? Or do I think this is one of the great suggestions of the Bible? That maybe if I get to it, will be really neat and I'll be a little more spiritual. Or is this core to Christianity and discipleship? And I'm arguing today that this is core to discipleship. It's why it's one of our core values on the wall. The first core value of outreach. That reaching out and being on mission for Jesus is why we are still here. If it's not, then why wouldn't Jesus just take us home to be with him as soon as we're saved? You know, someone accepts Christ, poof, they're gone. Someone else accepts Christ, poof, they're gone. Wouldn't that be cool? Be done with the the struggles of this world? But then how will they hear? How will they know? Jesus has left you on this planet for a specific reason. Don't ignore it. Don't miss it. Here, it's a specific appointment of the 72. It's a specific sending. Now, just a, a side note, some of your translations may say 70. And, and there's, there's a lot of debate. Is it 70, 72? We have actually really good old texts that, that have both of those. And so we can't know. And I'm not going to tell you which one it is, although I probably lean towards the ESV slightly more of 72. But probably this is referring back to Genesis 10, where it lists 70 or 72, ironically, those two numbers are both in Genesis 10, different nations. And this represents Jesus expanding the gospel from Jewish regions to the nations. If you want to know more about 70 or 72, talk to me later and we can talk about what texts and how they came up with that. But um, I'm just going to say 72 this morning. Enough? Well enough? Okay, thanks. And it signifies the gospel to all the nations. So the first question we ask, do I have a clear sense of divine commission? Not suggestion, divine commission to Jesus' mission. Second is just a quick one. Interesting how he sent them out in verse 1. Two by two into every town and place where he was about to go. And I think the question there is, am I actively on mission with others? Am I actively on mission with others? He's sending them ahead of him, sort of some prep teams to, to prepare villages, to share the gospel. But he sends them in pairs, probably for a couple reasons. One is just there's encouragement when you're with other people. When you're alone and and things happen, that can be very discouraging on the road or in mission. But when you're with a a group, one person or more, there's an encouragement there. There's probably also a sense of, in in Jewish circles, you, you were able to tell truth by two or more witnesses. And so the fact that there would be two there would give credibility to the message. But I think there's a great principle there of, are we ministering alone or are we ministering together? Am I actively on mission with others? You will, every time a a squadron goes into battle, they go as a group. They go as a squadron, right? 
I guess unless you have some commando that's off doing his own thing. But, but generally, they go as a squadron because you have each other's back and you can support each other. You can get more done working cooperatively. And so for us, I think it's for accountability, encouragement, and shared work, workload. But here's the thing. When, when, I, when I encounter people that don't want to be working together for the gospel, almost always the gospel isn't their priority. Because that means something else is more important than the gospel. Maybe being isolated. Maybe being by myself or having the glory. I don't know what it is. And I, and I fully recognize it's challenging to work with others. I hated most in college group projects. I despised group projects. Because I always felt like I did the work and they sat back and... Ugh. This is a divine group project. Because if we're all on mission together... We're working together toward that. And we multiply our efforts. Am I actively on mission with others? Here's the other thing. Is if this is most important to me and, and someone is, is, has that same thing that's important to them, that will cover over all kinds of personality differences. That will cover, cover over other ways that we might clash because our foundational value, our foundational mission is the same. I appreciated what, what the story, what he said. That's what brothers do. In war, you don't fight alone. It's silly to fight alone. Stupid to fight alone. And so we fight together. Third question. Do I spend time outside of church praying for those I know that don't know Christ and for missions? In verse 2, so he, he gives them the commission. Before he lets them go, what's the next thing he says? And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, they were part of the answer to that prayer. They were part of who's being sent out. But he's saying, there is so much more to do. There is so much more harvest. There are so many people that are ready, that that we're ready, that are ready for us to hear the gospel. So if this is your mission, it's your heart, it's your passion Pray that God will send out more workers. Pray that more souls will be won for Christ. And it says pray earnestly. This is back to no weak sauce prayers. It's not just a quick one we shoot up as we pass the missions booth. Or remember that the missions team's coming back. This is praying earnestly to implore, to entreat. This is your child that's been asking for two months to go to Disneyland. They are imploring, they are entreating, and they won't let it go. That's the type of prayer that Jesus is saying should be our call for the lost. And and not just missions. For the lost across the street from you. For the lost in the cubicle next to you. For the lost that came over last week for for extended family get-together for Easter. Pray diligently for them. That's part of being on mission. If it never comes up in my prayer life to pray for the lost, lost, if missions and our missionaries never come up in my prayer life, then that's an area I'm not on mission. That's an area that I'm not sold out for what Jesus wants me to be sold out for. And he's anticipating a large harvest here. He's anticipating that people will come. I, I love the end of the verse, to send out laborers into... The harvest, his harvest. 
And, and right here, Jesus is bringing in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we're afraid to share the gospel because what if I blow it? What if I mess up? What if I send that person to hell forever because of how I presented the gospel? It's his harvest. It's not yours. Let the Holy Spirit work. Be obedient and let God do the work for his harvest. Do I spend time outside of church? And, and I say that specifically because we pray for missions here. That's not the checklist that gets this one done. Do I spend time in my own personal time with God praying for those that don't know Christ? Pleading with God for those that don't know Christ. Today, we, we've brought back out the window out in the, the lobby. And there's little stick figures that you can put on the window. Many of you have already put that stick figure on. But that's the idea is you, you take that and, and it's out there that you can do it. There's some Sharpies out there. You take a stick figure that represents someone that you know that's lost. And on one of them, you just put your own initials. Don't put theirs. Put your own initials and put it up on the window. We'll get some tape. I don't think there's some tape on the table, but we'll get some tape. Maybe one of our um, ushers can be doing that. Um, Tape that on the window. And then take the second one somewhere and put it somewhere at home on a window, on a mirror where you can see it as a reminder to pray for them. Because I guarantee if you're praying for them and you're reminded to do that every day, you're going to start noticing opportunities to share the gospel with them and start taking advantage of those opportunities. Do I spend that time in prayer? Next thing we see as he goes on to 3 and 4, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Thanks, Jesus. That's encouraging. Carry no money, no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The next question is, am I in situations where I'm out of my comfort zone and must depend on God for the cause of the gospel? Let me repeat that one because this is huge for us. Am I in situations where I'm out of my comfort zone and must depend on God for the cause of the gospel? We don't like being out of our comfort zone. I don't think the 72 liked it when Jesus said, don't bring a money bag. Don't bring sandals. He's probably talking an extra pair of sandals there. They probably got to wear the ones they were wearing, especially over that terrain. But um, carry no knapsack. He basically forced dependence on him. And are we putting ourselves in situations where we are dependent on God or do we limit ourselves to our circle of comfort and what we're used to and what is easy? And we have a problem in America with the easy. And God wants us to step out and do the hard and do the difficult, do those things that require His help. Because if you're just doing the easy, you won't even realize He's helping you. Step out. Talk to the neighbor that you don't know how to talk to. Generate a relationship with someone that just bugs you, that you know needs Christ. Go on a missions trip. Even though you're not sure how that will work out and you're uncomfortable going out of the country, is God big enough to depend on? That's the question. Is He big enough to depend on if we're about His mission? Or is He going to leave you hanging when we obey Him? He's like, I don't know what you're doing. No. God is worthy of depending you know, verse 3, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs to the midst of the wolves. He, now notice, he, he didn't say don't go because there's wolves out there. He says, actually, I'm sending you 
into the wolves. He's sending them to a dangerous mission. He's sending them in in a mission where he knows there's going to be negative encounters and they should be expecting those negative encounters. He's sending them into war. And he's sending us into war. And yeah, sometimes it feels like we're lambs in the midst of wolves. And sometimes we want to fight back and be wolves and be vicious with people. But a a, a lamb doesn't force the wolf to eat. Well, maybe itself, but it doesn't force the good news. It just shares the good news and lets God do the work. This dependence on God, trusting on God for provision, I think strikes to the idol of self-reliance that we fight. The idol of having it everything we need and having everything all together. And that idol keeps us so many times from doing what God wants us to do. And an example I've used before, are we as a church, are we a cruise ship or a battleship? And I hope we're a battleship. And we are on mission together, reaching a lost world for Christ because that's what he's asked us to do. And on a battleship, you don't really care whether the deck chair is facing in or out. You care whether the guns are ready and we have the ammunition we need. A missionary in Africa was once asked if he really liked what he was doing. I love this because I think it speaks to comfort. And, well, I want to do what I like to do. His response was shocking. Do I like this work? He said, no. My wife and I do not like dirt. We have reasonable, refined sensibilities. We do not like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. But is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? God pity him, if not. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go, and we go. Love constrains us. Oh man, that, that, that stirs me up. That gets me going. Because there's times I don't share the gospel because it's inconvenient. There's times that this stops me because I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. Jesus sent them out as lambs to the wolves and said, don't even take what you, everything you think you need. Depend on me. Fifth question. Am I fired up about the urgency of the mission? Am I fired up about the urgency of the mission? Catch this out of verse 4, the end of verse 4, and greet no one on the road. This is a, a, something that we pro- you probably have read over. doesn't even make sense. Greet no one on the road. We're like, what? We're not even supposed to say hi? We're supposed to be rude to everyone we're walking by? You have to understand, Jesus is speaking to the urgency here, and he's saying there's, there's no time for distractions. There's no time for conversations that aren't heading towards sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel. Now, we have to understand culture a little bit here. Because in culture, their greetings, their salutations were more than just, hey, how you doing? See you later. For them, there was a whole structure of how you were supposed to, supposed to greet someone. Depending on, on status and things, um, one author wrote, in ancient times, a salutation could cover a wide range of social practices. Could be exchanging a greeting, hail. Um, it could be asking, well, and then often you're then supposed to ask politely about another person's welfare. Then you're supposed to express personal regard. And then you're supposed to speak some sort of blessing on them. Man, it would be exhausting to say hi to somebody on the road. And Jesus is, when he says, don't even say hi to someone on the road. Don't greet them on the road. He's saying, all this stuff is extra time. And if it's not toward the mission, we need to seriously evaluate whether that needs to be part of our lives. 
He's not saying be rude. He's not saying be ignorant. But, but he's saying we need to be on mission and we need to realize that mission is urgent. It's life or death urgent. Hell is hot and time is short. It's a familiar phrase. And eternity is forever. That's the urgency that Jesus is pushing into the 72 here. The mission must be central. It is too urgent to be embarrassed. It's too urgent to not take priority. It's too urgent to waste time on things that don't contribute to the mission. The soldiers, as they're taking the Humvee in, they didn't stop for a sandwich on their way in. They went and got the job done. That's the urgency that Jesus is teaching to his disciples that then we should copy if we're disciples. He goes on in, in 5 through 8. There's a couple things out of here and that, that we'll, we'll catch. He says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And he's talking blessing here and being a blessing to others. And he says, you know, you go into a house, you say, peace be on this house. If a son of peace or someone that's willing to follow Christ or willing to hear the gospel is there, then that blessing will be on his house. But he's saying, if not, if he rejects, don't worry about it. That peace will come back to you. There's this concern that if you give a blessing, what if I bless the wrong person? What if I accidentally give give peace to a house of someone that hates Jesus and is, is not receptive to the message. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. I got this. They, they won't have my peace if they reject me. In fact, it, it'll come back on you and I will help you with that rejection. But then he goes on in verse 7, and this is similar to what we talked about in Luke 9, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't be looking around for better accommodations, for a bigger jacuzzi, for a nicer bed or nicer meals. Stay where you're at because all of that is focusing on who? If, if I'm moving around for a more pleasant stay, I'm, I'm focusing on me and my desires. He says, no, stay there. Stay. You eat and drink what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house, which would have harmed ministry. It would have put self above the mission and compromised the mission. In verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. But I don't like it. Eat what is set before you. And he's challenging them to get beyond personal preferences and get beyond our own tastes and sensibilities and say, I will do anything for the mission. So the question here, and I didn't give that at the beginning on purpose, do I care more about reaching and helping others than my wants, desires, or plans? Do I care more about reaching and helping others than my wants, desires, or plans? He does say, eat what's set before you. When we're on mission trips, and I know Happy gave some of these same instructions, Pastor Andrew gave some of these same instructions for this trip. If, some, if someone serves you something, you eat it. Because that's what's polite. Especially in Middle Eastern cultures where table fellowship was everything, to not eat it would have been an insult. Same is true when we're on mission trips. I can remember one mission trip where they served this, this dish... And um, I, I'm not sure what it was, but I do know chicken feet were sticking out of it. And, and some of you know that I can be a little picky with my eating. <laughs> 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 uh, 
And you know what? No face, no, no complaint. You eat it and you enjoy it. And the reason you're able to is if you're on mission, if the mission is more important than what I want. That's the key to doing that. And so I was able to do that joyfully because it didn't matter whether, whether I thought this was edible or not. What mattered is these people are souls that are either going to heaven or to hell, and I have a mission to show them how to get to heaven and how to be with Jesus. And that mission constrains us. It defines us. Whatever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. There's a number of things we can go into. But my challenge is, do we pass up opportunities for mission because we're more concerned about our own ideas of what should be done, our own hopes, our own wants, our own desires? Do I ever pass up a a, a chance to share the gospel because it might impact my golf game or my outing plans or, or my convenience or my date night. And if any, if, if any of those things impact an opportunity to share the gospel, we have priority issues. We have mission issues. Not that those things aren't good. But Jesus is saying, be on mission for me. That's the priority. Seven, am I actively finding opportunities to help others and proclaim the gospel? Am I actively finding opportunities to help others and proclaim the gospel? And this is in verse 9. He gets to the same instructions he gave in in chapter 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And you see both there, heal and proclaim. Heal and say. And that word for heal is, is, um, is, is a word that actually can mean to serve or to help. Therapeuin is in the Greek. And we get what from that? therapeutic, right? And something that's therapeutic is something that's helpful or, or comes along and, and serves in some way. And it can mean medical healing, but it's, it's a much bigger concept than that. And Jesus is saying, help people, love people, serve them, and proclaim the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near to you, or some translations, is upon you. It's here. It has broken through with Jesus Christ. And it is starting in the hearts and minds of men. The king is here, and so the kingdom is where his reign lives in our hearts and souls. And it says, proclaim and serve. This is the mission. It's repeated from chapter 9. It will be repeated again. This is what we're to be about. We go on and we get some of the the larger sections here, 10 through 16, Do I have a clear motivating grasp of the fact that the stakes are high, final, and eternal? Let me repeat that. Do I have a clear motivating grasp of the fact that the stakes are high, final, and eternal? This is is the idea that when I begin to realize that this is life or death, that this is the decision between heaven or hell for all eternity, the, the seriousness and the weight of that will, will contribute to my dedication to the mission. Do I have a grasp of that? We already saw that in verse 7 a little bit about peace. And, and if they don't, if they're not a man of peace, or if they don't accept that, then that will be taken from them. But 10 through 16 talks about what will happen if they reject. What will happen if they turn away from God? And... And this should motivate us as the seriousness. He says, but whenever you enter a town, they do not receive you 
Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And we talked about that last chapter. And it, it's, it's shaking the dust off to say, it's between you and God now. He will deal with your rejection. And we talked about just a reminder that the, the Israelites would actually do this whenever coming in from Gentile towns. Shake off the feet because they wouldn't want to bring that dust from the pagans into their, their town. And so Jesus is saying, do that to some of the Jews that don't reject Jesus. And that would, have been, that would have been shocking to them. A little bit insulting, but in the right way this time. Because it's pointing out the seriousness of their rejection. And so when we understand the seriousness of this, we begin to understand the clarity that we need to share the gospel. You know, if I was standing here and this week I had a really productive week and I cured cancer then I know there's several of your doors. I would be pounding on your door to give you the cure because it's life or death. I would let nothing stop me because I care for you, I love you, and you would get the cure. Now think about that when it comes to sin and judgment and eternity apart from God. And we have the cure. So do we love people enough to pound on their doors and make sure they hear it? That's understanding the stakes are high, final, and eternal. And he goes on to really, Jesus pounds this one home. Um, In verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom was the, the, the paradigm of judgment from the Old Testament, that God rained fire down on this sinful town. He's like, it's going to be worse for them? And then he goes to, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If you put that map up, we'll just quickly do some geography, have some fun. Maps with Ron. Um, we know Capernaum is here, north of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry. That's where he lived. That's where Peter was from. That's where the disciples were called. Right up here, maybe three, four miles inland, is Chorazin. And then over here, one of these two places. We're not sure what the, where the boundaries of the Sea of Galilee were 2,000 years ago. But Bethsaida was over there. And it forms this triangle, which I can't really do well with this, where the majority of Jesus' Galilean ministry occurred. They got to see miracle after miracle after miracle. There's no excuse for them. They, they can't say, well, if I had been there, I would have... No, no, they were there. And they saw the miracles of Jesus. And they still didn't follow him. And so he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, I don't know if you can see them up there, but Tyre is up here, Sidon is up here. Those are, are pagan cities. Those are cities that they would have felt had no hope. And Jesus is saying, actually, if I had done my miracles there, they would have followed me. You didn't to these cities. And he's stressing to his disciples the seriousness of rejection. And he doesn't stop there. He goes down in verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heavens? Capernaum's where Jesus lives. So they probably, anyone that lived in Capernaum probably is like, we're in. Jesus, Jesus was here. And he said, no, no, you still have to repent and you still have to accept him too. He says, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down low to Hades. And he's referring to, to the passage in Isaiah and he's going to refer to there in the next section where the king of Babylon is brought down from the heights to Hades or Sheol, which quite possibly is even referring to Satan and his fall. 
And then verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. He say, you're my, you're my emissaries. You represent me. If they reject you, they're rejecting me and my message. And because I'm sent from God, if they reject me, they're rejecting God Almighty. And that is serious. That stinks. But he's helping us understand the gravity of the situation, the gravity of the mission. And that gravity should affect how we go about mission. C.T. Studd said this, Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He understood the gravity of the mission. Two more questions to ask. Ninth one, do I rejoice when someone comes to Christ or when I hear of the advance of the gospel? Do I rejoice when someone comes to Christ or when I hear of the advance of the gospel? I love these, these four verses here, 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, so they're excited. They've seen God working. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And, and he, being Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he's rejoicing with them, and they come back, and they're excited. Any of you coming back from the week excited about what you saw God do? Someone that went, give me one thing that you saw God do, so we can rejoice with you. This is impromptu. The whole team's going, oh, no. (laughs) Someone that went, what is one thing you saw God do? He brought the team together, okay? It's an act of God. Good. Someone else, give me one more thing. He what? Thankfulness from the families. So you got to see how you had touched their lives. And those care packages that many of you participated in, they got to give out. We should rejoice with them. And we're going to this week. But next Sunday, we're going to hear more stories and and more testimonies. Hopefully see some pictures. But Jesus rejoiced when the 72, when they came back. If, If when we hear that someone's come to Christ or when we hear what God is doing on the missions field, if that doesn't stir our hearts, we have a mission drift. We have a mission issue. And we need to make sure we're back on mission, praying for the lost and caring for the lost. And there's a number of things we can get into here. There's, um, you know, so they return and they see that the demons are even subject to them. And so we see an incursion into the realm of Satan here on this fallen world by the kingdom of God. And this is spiritual warfare. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And really there's two possibilities for that. It could be that he's referring to when he, is, as the pre-incarnate Christ, as God, saw Satan fall the first time. And this is terminology that's often used of that. But I think more likely, it's probably talking about what, how he saw the effect of God's people on mission, how, how he saw that affect Satan in his domain. Because he saw 72 people go into cities and people coming to Christ and demons being controlled he saw Satan's realm starting to crumble right there and the kingdom of God making inroads. Through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Satan is defeated. And I think that's what he's referring to here. 
He says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, animals that represented evil, the forces of evil. And so he's not talking literally here probably about snakes and scorpions, although that would be really cool. Um, He's probably talking about our, our spiritual victory over the realm of Satan and the realm of darkness. Again, it might be uncomfortable for us to talk in America about the supernatural. It's real and it's a warfare that we need to be aware of. And in verse 20, he gives a great corrective. Hey, don't rejoice, though, that you have power over Satan. Rejoice in salvation. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that brings us back to joy and what we should be joyful about. The last question to ask, am I seeing God in new ways? Am I seeing God in new ways? 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, those that think they're all smart in this age, and revealed them to little children, speaking of his disciples, those that will just obey and believe. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And in verse 22, you get just high Christology in Luke. You get the deity of Christ. He says, no one knows the Father except me. No one knows me except the Father. And he's showing that that sonship and fatherhood. He's showing that relationship that there is a oneness there. And then 23 and 24, I love this. Turned to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Because they had a new revelation of how God had authority over Satan and how the kingdom of God was coming into play and how God works. And they had that insight because they were on mission and obeyed Christ. When we step out for Christ, when we, are, when we step out of our comfort zone and, and work to be on His mission and share the gospel with our coworker or a friend or whoever, and when that's our passion, we will see God work in new ways. We will see God in new ways because as He answers prayer and as He works, we'll be blown away by who He is. Because I don't know if you realize this, none of us know completely who God is yet. Nor will we ever. And so if I'm stale in my faith, if I'm at a point where I haven't seen God in new ways in a long time and I haven't seen God work in a long time, it's probably because I'm not on mission. And I'm not doing those things that reveal who God is and allow Him to work. Man, that steps on my toes. And I hope it steps on yours. Because it's a challenge to make His calling our calling. His priority our priority. His mission our mission. Ten questions. I invite you this week to just read through them all. And and chances are high that none of us in this room can answer all those really well. And so this becomes a corrective to us, a course corrective to say, okay, where am I not on mission? Where do I need to adjust? Because this is why we're here. This is what God wants us to be about. Next week in your worship folders, and I wish I had them this week, but they're not there. You're going to get little um, business card size, you're invited cards. 
And, and we're, we're getting a lot of these made. And there's a picture of them up there because probably this is a little small to see. And um, my challenge to us is let's just start simple and, and grab a bunch of these cards next week. And as we're talking with people, invite them to church. Now, now keep in mind, inviting them to church is not the same as sharing the gospel. It's a step to open a conversation. I pray they come, they hear the gospel, they hear what Jesus Christ did on the cross with us, and then you have to talk to them. That's my prayer. That then they ask you questions and you get to have this conversation about the power of the cross that we talked about last week and what Christ is doing. But just a a great way to invite people, an easy way, and, and take advantage of any opportunities you have to turn conversations to what Christ has done. Village, we are sinners separated from God by our own choice. And Jesus in his love, while we were still sinners, came and died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin so we could be reconciled to God. That's good news. That's the kingdom of God to proclaim. Let's do that. Lord God, as your church, take our lives Take our hands, take our feet, take our will. They're yours. For your mission, for your cause, may we be just dedicated as a church to doing what you would have us do. Lord, dedicated to seeing the lost one for you. Thank you for your challenge, for your commission to us. Thank you for what you're going to do as we obey. In Jesus' name, amen.